Hello, welcome to another episode of Analyzing Mormonism. I'm here with America. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Uh, so this episode will be a little bit different because I am trying something new. I'm going to post this to YouTube because there's some visuals, although all the visuals are just ancient documents. <laughs> By ancient, I mean like 200 years. We like to keep you entertained. <laughs> is it 100 years? 100 years. How many? How long is that? 1830 to 2020. That's two, almost 200 years. See, okay. I got my math right. Okay. So this one, I this episode I have li- named, I have titled this episode An Argument from Silence, in which we analyze the sources produced before the first First Vision account was published in 1832. Here we have a chart of all the documents. There are, I think, 29 of them, which would have been nice if we had 30. So if you guys have more, just send them away. <laughs> um... But yeah, so there's 29 documents, and only one of them refers to the first vision. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to tell me which one it was. Which one is it? The 1832 account. <laughs> <laughs> the last one? The very last one on this list is um, when he finally sees Christ. He hasn't seen God yet, but at least he sees Christ, right? Okay, I just want to make this really clear. So Joseph Smith starts a church in 1830, and he published the Book of Mormon just a couple weeks before that. So 1830, he starts the church, and then in 1832, he says, oh, wait, I had a vision of Jesus Christ in 1820. So 12 years ago, I had a vision of Jesus. And then later in 1835, he says, oh, I saw in my vision, I saw Jesus and God in 1820. And then he continues the story from there, and it kind of gets um, a little fluffy um, after the first recollection, but it's just interesting. So anyway, just setting the stage, 12 years have gone by. And this is what we're doing. We're exploring these documents over these 12 years to see if anyone else had heard this story of Joseph Smith seeing Jesus Christ in God. This first document is from 1824, and it's um, not so much a document, I guess, it's just that a piece of history that happened, is that four of the Smiths joined the Presbyterian Church. And so in 1824, after the death of her son, Alvin, Lucy Smith and three of her children joined the Presbyterian Church. And this is found in biographical sketches. Joseph reported in the 1838 First Vision account that after he experienced the First Vision, he came home and told his mother that, I have learned for myself that Presbyterianism is not true. And that's from Joseph Smith History, chapter 1, verse 20. And my question is, why would Lucy and some of her children join a church that they knew was wrong? If Joseph says, Presbyterianism is not true, why would she just join it four years later? And if you're watching this, this is uh, just a close-up of the biographical sketches on page 74. And it says, this is Joseph speaking. I was at this time in my 15th year. My father's family was proselyted to the Presbyterian faith, and four of them joined the church, namely my mother Lucy, my brothers Hiram and Samuel Harrison, and my sister Sophronia. And I just think that's very interesting to see, like Joseph's actually saying this. So... Yeah, kind of problematic in my mind. I guess one thing that you'll notice with this biographical sketch is that the church is trying hard to push this, um, joining the Presbyterian Church in 1820. But historians like Dean Michael Quinn and Dan Vogel and others um, do agree that they didn't join until 1824, and it wasn't 1820. So it's just a little bit more problematic, I guess. So this one is an article that Joseph Smith Sr. published in a newspaper in Palmyra, and it ran for, I think, five days straight. And it was published in September on September 25th, 1824. And it says, To the public, Whereas reports have been industriously put in circulation, 
that my son Alvin had been removed from the place of his interment and dissected, which reports every person possessed of human sensibility must know, are particularly calculated to harrow up the mind of a parent and deeply wound the feelings of relations. Therefore, for the purpose of ascertaining the truth of such reports, I, with some of my neighbors this morning, repaired to the grave, and removing the earth, found the body which had not been disturbed. This method is taken for the purpose of satisfying the minds of those who have heard the report, and of informing those who have put it in circulation, that it is earnestly requested that they would desist therefrom, and that it is believed by some that they have been stimulated more by a desire to injure the reputation of certain persons than a philanthropy for the peace and welfare of my, of myself and friends. Joseph Smith, Palmyra, September 25th, 1824. So, did that really happen? Did they, like, really dig him up to, like, prove that it hadn't been? The, uh, there's a theory that goes that Joseph had to take his brother with him still, even though he's dead. So, maybe his dad, this is just a theory, maybe his dad undug his son to either pull off a finger, a piece of clothing, something... So that Joseph could bring it with him so that he can be successful in retrieving the plates. gross. So there's a theory that the reason he dug, the reason he published this newspaper is so that people wouldn't be creeped out by the fact that this 10-month-old grave had been exhumed. Um, But there's also the other theory that people did understand that Joseph had to take Alvin with him and that they were going to disturb it. Although, if this grave is 10 months old, they should just be able to look at it and see that it hasn't been disturbed. So there's really, it doesn't make any sense to me that that Joseph Sr. would dig up his son just to see if he was still there. Whoa. <laughs> anyway, so this is, while this doesn't say anything about the first vision specifically, it is, an, it is um, something that was published. It's very creepy. <laughs> it is creepy. It is something that was published before 1832, so that's why I added it in here. Yeah, so embalming did not become a popular practice until the American Civil War, which hadn't happened yet, so... Gross. Yeah, yeah, that's really <laughs> this gross. This was a decomposing body, like worms. And also, how traumatic for the dad to do that. Like, yeah, why would son. he do that? The only that once I heard that theory, that it just seems to be the only thing that I can think logically is that he needed a piece of Alvin, needed a piece of Alvin, or some part of him to bring, so that Joseph could bring and retrieve the gold plates. Oh. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> next. <laughs> Okay, so this next one is from the 1826 Glass Looker Trial, and we had a whole episode just going over the different accounts of the trial. So if you want to know more about that in full, go listen to those episodes. I have just pulled the um, Joseph Smith's dad talking and giving his testimony, which I think is pretty significant if you... um, We can talk about it after, but... So America's going to read this one. Joseph Smith Sr. was present and sworn as a witness. He confessed at great length all that his son had said in his examination. He delineated his characteristics in his youthful days, his visions of the luminous stones in the glass, his visit to visit Lake Erie in search of the stone, and his wonderful triumphs as a seer. He described very many instances of his finding hidden and stolen goods. He swore that both he and his son were mortified that this wonderful power which God had so miraculously given him should be used only in search of filthy lucre or its equivalent in earthly treasures, and with a long-faced, sanctimonious seeming, he said his constant prayer to his Heavenly Father was to manifest his will concerning this marvelous power. He trusted that the Son of Righteousness would some day illuminate the heart of the boy and enable him to see his will concerning him. These words have ever had a strong impression on my mind. 
They seem to contain a prophetic vision of the future history of that mighty delusion of the present century, Mormonism. The old man eloquent, with his lank and haggard visage, his form very poorly clad, indicating a wandering vagabond rather than an oracle of future events, has, in view of those events, excited my wonder, if not my admiration. And I think this might be um, Purple's account of the trial. But I just think this part is interesting that I highlighted, where he says, he trusted that the son of righteousness would someday illuminate the heart of the boy. So, and maybe, like, have him do better works, but... Rather than finding filthy lucre. Right, but this is 1826. This is presumably six years after the Son of Righteousness has already seen Joseph. So oh. it's just interesting that even the dad here is kind of going like, against well, the first day he will be worth something. That boy, he will, he's going to be amazing. Yeah. Rather than he saw God. <laughs> right, so gonna, it's just... He's going to start the new church of, of Christ or whatever. Exactly. So even if Joseph had a vision, he didn't even tell his family about it, it seems. Certainly his father. So in the summer of 1828, Joseph Smith attended the Methodist Sunday School. And these two sources I pulled from Dan Vogel's Early Mormon Documents, Volume 4. Concerning Smith's possible motivation for seeking membership, Marvin S. Hill has made the following insightful comment. I suspect that he, Smith, was trying to please Emma and her family, who had close ties with Methodists. Perhaps he was trying to make peace with Isaac Hale, on whose property he had recently come to reside. All available evidence suggests Joseph's probationary activity was a token sort, and that he had no deep interests in Methodists in 1828. But if he had been commanded not to join a church, as the 1838 version reads, would he have gone even this far? The 1832 account spares us having to explain this point. In this account, the Lord simply tells Joseph, None doeth good, no, not one. They have turned aside from the gospel. With no imperative to shun all churches, he was free in 1828 to become a Methodist probationer if he thought it best to do so. So this doesn't really make sense what this apologist is saying. Does that make sense to you? So like in 1838, in the 1838 version, he is not supposed to join any church in 1820 and onward, but it's 1828. I don't, it's just... So he's saying 1828, he could totally do that because all the Lord said is that they have turned aside from the gospel. That's really what it sounds like, but he's like, that doesn't work that way. You're, you're invalid. He's invalidating. I feel like this Marvin S. Smith is invalidating the 1820 first vision, right? That's what it sounds like to me anyway. Um, but also Richard Bushman, who is also a Mormon historian, he also suggested that Smith attended the meetings probably to placate her or Emma's family. Perhaps the death of Emma's child on the 15th of June also had something to do with it. Membership in the Methodist church was not was not required for participation in the Wednesday class, which makes sense. So he didn't actually join the church. He was just attending the Wednesday class. So to me, it just feels problematic because it's contrary to the 1820 vision. But again, it makes sense because if Emma's child just died and she needs comfort, then where else we're better to find it than at church. Well, yeah, and that's a, a thing that we've discovered in science even is that people need people. We need we need the social interaction that you get from things like church. So if you're not going to go to church, you need something to, else to replace it. That's, that's a different topic entirely. But, like, you need the support and um, understanding of other people yeah. that you find very easily at church. Like, I totally agree, and I wonder why, because I've never heard this. I never heard this as an active member, and it just sort of feels like the church is pushing it down. But, like, this isn't problematic to me if you look at it that way. Like, 
Yeah, their kid just died. They needed comfort, and the church hadn't been restored yet. But the way that I'd always understood the first vision is that God was like, none of these churches are true. You are going to create my one true church on earth. Right. So if that's the way that it actually happened, which, of course, we're going to see that there's so many versions of it that who can keep track. But um, (laughs) if that's the way it had happened, then it doesn't make sense for him to go and participate in somebody else's church. When if if they are specifically all wrong. Didn't Uh he say that? If they're wrong, yeah. Unless he was there to correct them. But that doesn't seem to be the case. I mean, I guess people attend churches all the time that they don't believe are correct. So, anyway. I guess that's true. So, one of the documents that I wanted to share is from Isaac Hale. It's an agreement with Isaac Hale. And it was published April 6, 1829. So, this agreement doesn't really say anything about the first vision at all. There's no reason why it should. It is just a monetary agreement between Joseph and Isaac. Because Isaac is letting giving Joseph money. And he was, I guess, signing so that Joseph would pay him back. And I think Oliver actually helped pay a lot of this back. So this comes from the Articles of the Church of Christ, and this was written by Oliver Cowdery, published June 1829. And so in this articles, in these Articles of the Church of Christ, he goes over the how to baptize, how to administer the sacrament, how to ordain teachers and priests and give them the priesthood, and things like that. So this is just a portion of, of everything that he wrote. And now behold, these are the words which ye shall say, calling them by name, saying, Having authority given me of Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. And then shall ye immerse them in the water, and come forth again out of the water. And after this manner shall ye baptize in my name. For behold, verily I say unto you, that the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost are one, and I am in the Father, and the Father in me, and the Father and I are one. Thank you. So this, I think, is right about the time that they are writing this, getting this um, revelation from the Book of Mormon, now that I'm thinking about it. Um, but also, I, the reason I pulled out this section of all the ones um, is because it seems, correct me if you see differently, but it looks like a very Trinitarian view. The Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost are one, and, and the Father and I are, are one. Like, it just sounds like he hasn't evolved his theory yet, or theology yet, that God and Christ are separate beings. Does this get edited later, or is it left this way I think, in I think this evolves. I think, also, if anyone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this evolves into DNC 20. Yeah, so in uh, this, if this isn't a re- an evolution of DNC 20, then I don't know what exactly this becomes. But in DNC 20, um, he talks about the same thing, you know, um, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen. And, I, and then shall he immerse him or her in the water and come forth again out of the water. And that's it. And that, those are verses 73 and 74, and it's very, very similar, but it doesn't... It leaves off um, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost are one. And I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Right. And the Father and I are So that's one. a good catch if that isn't, if this is indeed, if this does indeed become DNC 20. Um, so that's super interesting. This article was originally written in the Palmyra Freeman, but it was published in a few different papers. So it was published between August and September of 1829. And it is called Golden Bible. The greatest piece of superstition that has ever come within the sphere of our knowledge is one which has for some time past and still occupies the attention of a few superstitious and bigoted individuals of this quarter. It is generally known and spoken of as the Golden Bible. Its proselytes give the full account of it. In the fall of 1827, a person by the name of Joseph Smith of Manchester, Ontario County, 
reported that he had been visited in a dream by the Spirit of the Almighty, and informed that in a certain hill in that town was deposited this golden Bible, containing an ancient record of a divine nature and origin. After having been thrice thus visited, as he states, he proceeded to the spot, after having penetrated Mother Earth, a short distance the Bible was found, together with a huge pair of spectacles. He had directed, however, not to let any mortal being examine them, under no less penalty than instant death. They were therefore nicely wrapped up and excluded from the vulgar gaze of poor wicked mortals. It was said that the leaves of the Bible were plates of gold about eight inches long, six wide, and one-eighth of an inch thick, on which were engraved characters or hieroglyphics. By placing the spectacles in a hat and looking into it, Smith could, he said so at least, interpret these characters. An account of this discovery was soon circulated. The subject was almost invariably treated as it should have been, with contempt. A few, however, believed the golden story, among whom was Martin Harris, an honest and industrious farmer of this town. So blindly enthusiastic was Harris that he took some of the characters interpreted by Smith and went in search of someone besides the interpreter, who was learned enough to English them. But to all whom he applied, among the number was Professor Mitchell of New York, happened not to be possessed of sufficient knowledge to give satisfaction. Harris returned and set Smith to work at interpreting the Bible. He has at length performed the task, and the work is soon to be put to press in this village. Its language and doctrines are said to be far superior to those of the Book of Life. All right, so here we have a letter to Oliver Cowdery, written October 22nd, 1829. Respected sir, I would inform you that I arrived at home on Sunday morning the 4th after having a prosperous journey and found all well. The people are all friendly to us except a few who are in opposition to everything unless it is something that is exactly like themselves. And two of our most formidable persecutors are now under censure and are cited to a trial in the church for crimes which, if true, are worse than all the gold book business. We do not rejoice in the affliction of our enemies, but we shall be glad to have truth prevail. There begins to be a great call for our books in this country. The minds of the people are very much excited when they find that there is a copyright obtained and that there is really books about to be printed. I have bought a horse of Mr. Josiah Stowell and want someone to come after it as soon as convenient. Mr. Stowell has a prospect of getting five or six hundred dollars. He does not know certain that he can get it, but he is going to try. And if he can get the money, he wants to pay it in immediately for books. We want to hear from you and know how you prosper in the good work. Give our best respects to father and mother and all our brothers and sisters to Mr. Martin Harris and all the company concerned. Tell them that our prayers are put up daily for them, that they may be prospered in every good work and work that they may be preserved from sin, here and from the consequence of sin hereafter. And now, dear brother, be faithful in the discharge of every duty, looking for the reward of the righteous. And now may God of his infinite mercy keep and preserve us, spotless until his coming and receive us all to rest with him in eternal repose through the atonement of Christ our Lord. Amen. Joseph Smith, Jr. So this is just the letter. There's really no reason why Joseph would talk about the first vision in this letter, but it's just another thing that was written and published um, that didn't reference it at all. So Another thing that I see as a source for there not having been a first vision is the actual 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon, which was written in 1829. 
The text of the Book of Mormon indicates that there is only one God and that the two they are they are not two separate beings. For example, in First Nephi um, eleven eighteen, it says that Mary is the mother of God, and it is later changed to the mother of the Son of God. And in First Nephi thirteen forty, the Lamb of God is the Eternal Father and the Savior of the world, and it was later changed to the Lamb of God is the Son of the Eternal Father and the Savior of the world. And even in the, the our current edition right now in the Book of Mormon, it seems to still have a lot of Trinitarian views. Um, we have Zeezrom where he says, "Is there more than one God?" And Amulek, I think it's Amulek where he says, um, "No, there's not. There's there's only one God." And so, and that kind of is throughout the Book of Mormon. So it's kind of complicated anyway. But anyway, to me, I view that as Joseph changing his theology and that there is one God, then there is three distinct members of the Godhead. Um, anyway, um, continuing on. This is published in 1830. Um, it's called Blasphemy, Book of Mormon, alias the Golden Bible. And it was published in two different places. It was published in the Rochester Daily and the Rochester Republican. The Book of Mormon has been placed in our hands. A viler imposition was never practiced. It is an evidence of fraud, blasphemy, and credulity, shocking to the Christian and moralist. The author and proprietor is one Joseph Smith, Jr., a fellow who, by some hocus-pocus, acquired such an influence over a farmer of Wayne County that the latter mortgaged his farm for $3,000, which he paid for printing and binding 5,000 copies of this blasphemous work. The volume consists of about 600 pages and is divided into the books of Nephi, of Jacob, of Mosiah, of Alma, of Mormon, of Ether, and of Helaman. Copyright secured. The style of the work may be conjectured from the preface and testimonials which we subjoin. So it seems like there is a reference to, if there is a reference to the first vision, it is this Hocus Pocus. <laughs> By some Hocus Pocus. By some Hocus Pocus, meaning the first vision, which they don't reference further than Yeah, I don't think they mean the Hocus... I don't think they mean the first vision because... Um... No, I, I'm sure they don't. I just think if it if you're going to read in, any of that to be the first vision, it would be Hocus Pocus. But, yes, that more aligns with his uh, magical worldview. It absolutely the, does. And the literal hocus pocus that he was getting into. Well, and you're right, because now that I'm looking at it, it actually is referencing the book of uh, the gold plates. So it's not even referencing. A fellow by some hocus pocus acquired some of the influence over the farmer. Um, so, yeah, it's not even talking about the first vision. So. Yeah, and most likely he acquired such an influence by... Um, assuring this farmer that he could find something in a field or dig up some treasure or yeah. some such. Which farmers are they referring to? Anyway? Martin Harris. Martin Harris, right. Uh, yes. Okay, so this one is the Articles and Covenants, which was published in 18... of April of 1830. Um, and the church says it could, be, it could have been published as early as the summer of 1829. They also say that it was, um, I think, actually written down in 1831. But I'll just keep it at 18... 30. So, um, this also later became canonized scripture. Um, and then there again is no reference to the first vision. The articles and covenants of the church of Christ agreeable to the will and commandments of God. The rise of the church of Christ in these last days being 1830 years since the coming of our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ in the flesh, it being regularly organized and established agreeable to the laws of our country by the will and commandments of God in the fourth month. And on the sixth day of the same, 
which commandments were given to Joseph Smith, Jr., who was called of God and ordained an apostle of Jesus Christ, an elder of the church, and also to Oliver Cowdery, who was also called of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, an elder of the church, and ordained under his hand, and this according to the grace of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be all glory both now and forever. Amen. For after that it truly was manifested unto the first elder that he had received remission of his sins. He was entangled again in the vanities of the world, but after truly repenting, God visited him by an holy angel, whose countenance was as lightning, and whose garments were pure and white above all whiteness, and gave unto him commandments which inspired him from on high, and gave unto him power, by the means of which was before prepared, that he should translate a book, which book contains the record of a fallen people, and also the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles and also to the Jews, proving unto them that the holy scriptures be true, and also that God doth inspire men and call them to his holy work in these last days, as well as in the days of old, that he may be the same God forever. Amen. And then in the article, if you, I didn't post the whole thing because it's, you know, pretty big, but um, they go on to talk about the Book of Mormon and how he translated it. But here again, it says that he, after, um, it says... For after that it was truly manifest unto the first elder, meaning Joseph, that he had received a remission of his sins. This would be a reference to the first vision, except that literally hasn't happened yet. And it says God visited him by an holy angel, meaning the angel Moroni, who gave him the gold plates and the ability to translate. So, again, no real reference to the first vision. And this aligns with, was it his mother's letter that said he repented of his sins and then was given... Oh, I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Receive a, a remission of his sins. Yes, that's very correct. Okay, so this next one um, was published on June 2nd, 1830, and it is from the Fredonia Censor. New Bible. A fellow by the name of Joseph Smith, who resides in the upper part of Susquehanna County, has been, for the last two years, we are told, employed in dictating, as he says, by inspiration, a new Bible. He pretended that he had been entrusted by God with a golden Bible, which had been always hidden from the world. Smith would put his face into a hat in which he had a white stone and pretend to read from it while his coadjutor transcribed. The book purports to give an account of the ten tribes, and strange as it may seem, there are some who have full faith in his divine commission. The book, it seems, is now published. We extract the following from the Rochester Republican. And then they just go on to to, uh, publish what we just read, the Blasphemy in the Book of Mormon, Book of Mormon alias the Golden Bible. This one is Revelation Book 1, and it was written the summer of 1830, and I am not posting the entire thing, nor are we reading it because it is so long, because it later becomes part of the Book of Commandments as well as the Doctrine and Covenants. And if you start at the beginning of Revelation Book 1, it goes right into the last 116 pages, and it talks about how wicked men were seeking to frustrate God's work, and and it goes on from there as far as the history, but it doesn't say anything about the first vision. It doesn't say anything in retrospect, like the first vision had already happened. There's just It's just silent on the matter of the first vision. So this one was published August 28, 1830, and it is a letter to Newell Knight and the church in Colesville. Dearly beloved in the Lord, we are under necessity to disappoint you this time for reasons which I shall mention hereafter, but trusting that your meeting may not be an unprofitable one, may you all realize the necessity of getting together often to pray and supplicate at the throne of grace, that the Spirit of the Lord may always rest upon you. Remember that without asking we can receive nothing, therefore ask in faith, and ye shall receive such blessings as God sees fit to bestow upon you. 
Pray not with covetous hearts that ye may consume it upon your lusts, but pray earnestly for the best gifts. Fight the good fight of faith that ye may gain the crown which is laid up for those that endure faithful unto the end of their probation. Therefore hold fast that which ye have received so liberally from the hand of God, so that when the time of refreshing shall come, ye may not have labored in vain, but that ye may rest from all your labors and have fullness of joy in the kingdom of God. Dearly beloved brethren, we are not ignorant of your tribulation, knowing that ye are placed among ravening wolves. Therefore we have the most earnest desire to come see you. But our friends from the west have not yet come, and we can get no horse and wagon, and we are not able to come afoot so far. Therefore we cannot come this Saturday, but we look for our friends from the west every day, and with safety we can promise to come next Saturday if the Lord will. Therefore our desire is that ye should assemble yourselves together next Saturday, so that all things will be in order when we come. Be careful that the enemy of all righteousness will not get the advantage over you in getting the news abroad. Were it not for the prayers of you few, the Almighty would have thundered down his wrath upon the inhabitants of that place. But be not faint, the day of your deliverance is not far distant, for the judgments of the Lord are already abroad in the earth, and the cold hand of death will soon pass through your neighborhood and sweep away some of your most bitter enemies, for you need not suppose that God will be mocked at and his commandments be trampled under their feet in such a manner as your enemies do, without visiting them in his wrath when they are fully ripe. And behold, the angel cries, Thrust in your sickle, for the harvest is fully ripe, and the earth will soon be reaped. That is, the wicked must soon be destroyed from off the face of the earth, for the Lord hath spoken it. And who can stay the hand of the Lord? For who is there that can measure arms with the Almighty? For at his commands the heavens and the earth must pass away. For the day is fast hastening on when the restoration of all things shall be fulfilled, which all the holy prophets have prophesied of, even unto the gathering in of the house of Israel. Then shall come to pass that the lion shall lie down with the lamb, etc. But brethren, be not discouraged when we tell you of perilous times, for they must shortly come, for the sword, famine, and pestilence are approaching. For there shall be great destructions upon the face of this land, for ye need not suppose that one jot or tittle of the prophecies of all the holy prophets shall fail, and there are many that remain to be fulfilled yet. And the Lord hath said that a short work will he make of it, and the righteous shall be saved, if it be as by fire. May the grace of God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost be and abide with you from henceforth and forever. Amen. Signed, John Whitmer and Joseph Smith. Newell Knight. P.S. Waited until Saturday morning and our friends have not yet arrived. Please send Polly's letter and also the priest with William and oblige. Next page lost. And the next page was lost on this one. Um, so there's no reason that Joseph would have talked about the first vision in here. Um, I just, as you were reading, it just reminded me of sort of treasure digging. Um, if this bad things will happen, these people will die if you are righteous. Um, also, I think Joseph was kind of big on threats. As I'm reading more of church history, he's he was very um, confident in his prophecies. And so he would tell people, he would like threaten them with destruction, sort of like he did with Emma and people on Zion's camp. And I um, just thought that was interesting. It reminded me of Under the Banner of Heaven, where he's threatening the doctor who's about to castrate him. And he's, I mean, this is just a made up conversation, but I could see it happening because of yeah, Joseph's character. Very, very in line. Well, and what I was noticing as I was reading it, that it felt a lot like reading the Book of Mormon. Like, um, there's a lot of therefores. Yes, and that's... kind of run-on sentences um, that just kind of keep going. Um, I don't know. That's a very good observation that it reads 
like the Book of Mormon, and you could say, you could argue that he's writing like this way because he's translated the Book of Mormon, so it's like fresh in his mind, or you could say the reverse, and that the Book of Mormon is a product of Joseph Smith. Yeah, yeah, like if I was translating something, it would not change my speech pattern, I feel like, and I feel like his speech pattern in that sounded very much like scripture. Yeah, yeah, especially if you're translating however with me sometimes and this is just i guess in a little bit of favor of joseph sometimes when i read dr seuss or i read shakespeare it's still going through my head after i've read it um this is also just the way they talked in 1830 right i don't know if everyone talked like this (laughs) it's interesting like even with charles anthem in his letters i don't think he talked like this he was like i don't i don't and then the newspapers are newspapers, yeah. I noticed the difference between the newspapers and this. Like they are um still very uh they use a lot of very descriptive words that we don't really use anymore. Mm-hmm. Um Well they were trying to made, grab attention. Yeah, the newspapers, they were definitely right? more attention grabbing than, than Joseph's writing. But um and they don't they didn't use therefore and Yada yada. And quoting scriptures and Yeah. Yeah. This next one was published december twenty eighth, eighteen thirty, in the Rochester Republican. Book of Mormon. Most of our readers, we presume, have heard of this pretended revelation made to a certain few in and about Palmyra, revealing the fundamentals of a new religion. A ridiculous story was told about its discovery. Golden plates were found in a stone box. A Mr. Somebody, who could neither read nor write, was found able to translate them, and somebody else, equally ignorant, to transcribe them, and a worthy, honest, but credulous farmer was found willing to be ruined by defraying the expense of publishing the Book of Mormon, as was to be expected, fell dead-born from the press." Here it was supposed the matter would rest, without causing even a sneer at the expense of the revelators. This, however, seemed not to be the case. The disciples of Mormon have recently appeared in Ohio and are propagating their new light with extraordinary rapidity, going to the credulous and laying the foundations broad and wide for a new Jerusalem about to be built. And now it seems the oracle has commenced its responses nearer home. Surely it was not rightly said that in that hour the heathen oracles became dumb forever. On Thursday of last week, one of these seers of Mormon appeared in Canadagua, delivered a discourse, and avowed his full belief that the book was a revelation from God, and of equal authenticity with the Old and New Testament. What number of hearers he had, we are not informed, but for the honor of intelligent man, we hope and trust his followers are and will be few and far between. This matter must be the ne plus ultra of fanaticism and delusion. If man will go beyond this in belief, verily there can be no end to their credulity. So again, there's no, there's no, not even a mention of Joseph Smith, but um, there's no mention of a first vision at all. A Mr. Somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I also think this is interesting, and I think that Fawn Brody points this out in her book, No Man Knows My History, where... Like, Joseph's starting religion is just like everyone else, and this this implies, like, you know, we, we didn't expect it to go anywhere. And some of these other newspaper articles say the same thing, and that's what, that's like the gift that Joseph had, is to continue this religion. Well, him being a martyr probably was a big part of that, right? It just solidifies people's belief in a person if they will die for their cause. That's very true. I wonder what the growth was after versus before he was martyred. This next one was published 
the same day in the Buffalo Patriot. Book of Mormon. This book, otherwise called the Golden Bible, has excited considerable curiosity in some parts of the country, and we learn that preachers had appeared in the state of Ohio and elsewhere who profess their belief that it is of divine origin. On Thursday evening last, a preacher of this character delivered a discourse at the townhouse in this village to an assembly of two or three hundred people. In the course of his remarks, he explicitly avowed his firm belief that the Book of Mormon is a revelation from God, that he believed the golden plates on which it is said to have been inscribed in mysterious characters had been discovered and deciphered by a very ignorant man through the aid of divine assistance, and that he considered it as of equal authenticity with the Old and New Testaments, whether these persons are really sincere in the profession of such belief, or whether their object is to promote the sale of the book, we will not undertake to determine." And that reminds me of the quote by Martin Harris where he says that even if this is all fake, he's still going to make money off the Book of Mormon. Um, that was something he supposedly said. But also, both of these um, articles, they talk about the divine assistance, I, I think, in receiving the gold plates, um, but nothing about nothing about the first vision. This also mentions, in this, it did in the very, uh, did in the, the last one as well, that, um, so this one called him an, a very ignorant man, and then the mm-hmm. other one called him or it just said he could neither read nor write. Um, which is interesting considering what we know about Joseph Smith's actual upbringing, that he was raised by teachers who were... Right, and his grandparents were teachers, and we, as we read off the, um, the trials, he was 20, and he was still going to school. And Joseph even was promoting, in one of the first vision accounts, he says, I'm, you know, very unlearned. I think it was the 32 account, but he's, he's also promoting his... Um, lack of education, which is interesting. Which, I mean, clearly he didn't go to Yale, but um, I feel like calling him unlearned or ignorant is a a great excess of the truth. Right. This next one is from May 31st, 1831, and it is the Lockport Balance. The principal personage in this farce is a certain Joe Smith, an ignorant and nearly unlettered young man living at or near the village of Palmyra, the second an itinerant pamphlet peddler and occasionally a journeyman printer named Oliver Cowdery, the third Martin Harris, a respectable farmer at Palmyra. Other less important actors have been brought in as the exigencies of the three first named required. About two years since, Smith pretended to have been directed in a dream or vision to a certain spot located between the village of Palmyra and Manchester. A slight excavation of the earth enabled him to arrive at this new revelation, written in mysterious characters upon gold plates. A pair of spectacles of strange and peculiar construction were found with the plates to aid the optics of Joe and his associates. Soon after, another very fortunate circumstance occurred. This was the introduction of no less a personage than Oliver Cowdery, to whom, and whom only, was given the ability, with the aid of the spectacles, to translate the mysterious characters. All this arranged, but one thing was wanting to promulgate the new revelation. Money. Martin Harris was possessed of a valuable farm acquired by industry and economy. In his religious sentiments, he was a credulous zealot. His credulity and his money were too conspicuous to be overlooked by the modern apostles. In due time, a divine command came to Harris, through Joe, to devote his property and all that was his to the project. Harris's farm was mortgaged and the printing of the Bible executed. It is a book of over 500 pages and is entitled Book of Mormon. 
Of the book, it is only necessary to say that it is a ridiculous imitation of the manner of the Holy Scriptures, and in many instances a plagiarism upon their language. With all its glaring inconsistencies, it can hardly claim the poor merit of common ingenuity. The projectors of the scheme have attempted to make the discovery story historically consistent. The surmise or uncertain tradition connected with the destruction of Babylon, as in Jerusalem, and dissemination of the Jews is brought to their aid and they would have it, a portion of the Jews, wandered to this continent, and by divine command deposited the Book of Mormon in the obscure spot where the lucky stars of Joe Smith directed him. I like that lesson. It's the lucky stars of Joe Smith directed him. Okay. So, any, what were your initial thoughts on this one? It's weird to me to, to call him Joe Smith, and it's interesting that they go J-O period. It's oh, almost yeah. like um, it's almost like, like junior period. Oh yeah, but it but... might be shorthand for the newspaper. Yeah, I, I wonder. Um, there was a few like things sh- that stuck out. That's what it looks like. It's, it's shorthand, but like I've always thought of Joe Smith as like a disrespectful, but that looked more respectful to me. I don't know why that stood out. Anyway, interesting. Um, I like that it. This has nothing to do with the first vision, but I like that they talk about how they're he's plagiarizing from the Bible, which is very obvious because. Well, there's literal... Like, 20% of it? I think that's a large portion that's uh, from the Bible, but... Anyway, so it says, oh, Smith no. pretended to have been directed in a dream or a vision to a certain spot located between the village. So he's saying, by a by a dream or vision, he was brought to the gold plates. And again, no mention of the first vision. Right, yeah. And if he's being persecuted for having a vision, there are no such things as visions in these days. Like... The newspapers would be publishing it if, if right, there's persecution. Is, this is not what they seem to be pointing out. They seem to be pointing out that he's making stuff up rather than that he's having having or, visions. Or if anything is true, the story of Moroni is consistent throughout mm-hmm. throughout all of church history. Well, I mean that it happened that something occurred with an angel and gold plates. Like that's a consistent story. But the first vision, right, right? It's not consistent in the details, but. But it's more consistent than the first vision than him that seeing. led him to the, the 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 Book of Mormon. Right, right. Okay, so this next one is um, was published June 29, eighteen thirty one, in the Jamestown Journal. It's called the Progress of Mormonism. The editor of the Painesville, Ohio Gazette says. Martin Harris, one of the original Mormon prophets, arrived in the village last Saturday on his way to the Holy Land. He says he has seen Jesus Christ and that he is the handsomest man he ever did see. He has also seen the devil, whom he describes to be a very sleek-haired fellow with four feet and a head like a jackass. I love this one. And this has also nothing to do with the first vision or even Joseph, but um, it's interesting to me that the Jamestown Journal is going to publish Martin Harris's seeing Christ, albeit he is, what does he describe him as? The handsomest man he ever did see, and the devil being a jackass. So oh, if it probably... Be very, very sleek-haired fellow, and with a head like a jackass. Your dog has sleek hair. Okay. You think he's a fellow? A sleek-haared fe- fellow. With oh, I guess four that's true. feet. Sleek-haired fellow, like four feet, head like a jackass. So, so. like, he's describing... Yeah, like to me, a I was just picturing a donkey with but long like, hair. Yeah, like a long-haired. But he's calling him a fellow. I don't know. Um, anyway, so I just thought this was interesting. Why are they publishing Martin's supposed visions and not Joseph's? So well, it also is. Um, I don't know. He, Martin Harris is such a weird character. 
he's clearly very important to um, the publishing of the Book of Mormon, but it seems like he's mostly important because because he has the money. But he offers a lot of strange <laughs> stories, and didn't he testify that some other church was true? Yes, we should do a whole other episode on that one. Um, yeah. I kind of want to go in kind of chronological order, um, okay. but I'm totally willing to jump around because there's other things that I want to talk about. But Okay, so the next one, it was published September 6th, 1831 in the Buffalo Patriot, and this one is called Mormonism. It is certainly strange, yet nevertheless true, that this infatuated people, if we may place confidence in the reports of the newspapers, are becoming more numerous and assuming a more formidable appearance. We had hoped that ere this the believers in the Book of Mormon would have been entirely extinct, and that no individual, however credulous, could be found so blind to reason and common judgment as to permit himself to be carried away by the absurdities of the Mormon doctrine. The frailties incident to human nature have in all ages invariably shown themselves, either in remarkable lethargy or in enthusiastic excitement, unsanctioned by reason or common sense. But the followers of the Book of Mormon, if the accounts received be not inconceivably exaggerated, are amongst the most blind and deluded people we have upon record. They believe that their leader is the real Jesus Christ, and that both he and his disciples have infinite powers to work miracles, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and they testify that he has cast out many devils, that the millennium is nigh, and that Philadelphia is the place where Jesus Christ will meet his disciples and followers. They are now removing to the promised land some indefinite spot on the Mississippi. Some have gone and, and others... Some have gone and others are disposing of their property, often at an immense pecuniary sacrifice, that they may join their companions gone before. To such an enthusiastic pitch have they raised their imaginations, that the entreaties and persuasive arguments of friends have no weight whatever. Their religious ceremonies and observances are forms of obsceneness and blasphemy, and are conducted in a manner shocking to the sense of rational creatures. In their excesses, unrestrained by the presence of the opposite sex, and in one assembly, they roll naked on the floor and exhibit a variety of grotesque and unseemly forms that humanity would blush to name. It is truly lamentable that such a state of things exists. Yet, nevertheless, these fanatics are daily receiving new accessions from New York, Indiana, etc., um, that was a little bit kind of um, extreme. Yeah, I hope they weren't <laughs> actually rolling that naked on the floor. Quickly. Um, so there's again nothing about a first vision, and I highlighted they believe that their leader is the real Jesus Christ. Um, why not mention that he saw him? I guess. But. Yeah, like if he was being persecuted for seeing God, I feel like this one, which is very clearly, like even making claims that seem ridiculous to you and me, uh-huh. they should have been pointing out how ridiculous it was that he thought he saw God. Right, know? right. I absolutely think they would have pointed out if they knew about it. This next one was published October 15th, 1831. As my birthday. <laughs> the Albany Argus, and it's called The Mormonites. The Mormonites. A preacher of this sect visited us last Saturday. We heard a part of his lecture, which occupied more than two hours. From account, this sect came into existence a little more than a year since in the following manner. A young man, about 23 years of age, somewhere in Ontario County, New York, was visited by an angel. Here the preacher looked around him, apparently to see if the credulity of the people in this enlightened age could be thus imposed on. (laughs) Keep going. (laughs) 
who informed him three times in one night that by visiting a certain place in that town he would have revealed to him something of importance. The young man was disturbed but did not obey the summons until the following day when the angel again visited him. At the place appointed he found in the earth a box which contained a set of thin plates resembling gold with the Arabic characters inscribed on them. The plates were minutely described as being connected with rings in the shape of the letter D which facilitated the opening and shutting of the book. The preacher said he found in the same place two stones with which he was enabled by placing them over his eyes and putting his head in a dark corner to decipher the hieroglyphics on the plates. This, we were told, was performed to admiration, and now, as a result, we have a book which the speaker informed us was the Mormon Bible, a book second to no other, without which the Holy Bible, he seemed to think, would be of little use. Um, uh, so I was thinking of all the consistent things. The, uh, the Urim and Thummim, the spectacles, really does carry throughout church history. Yeah. Like... Yeah. And, and I thought it was interesting that he said placing them over his eyes and putting his head in a dark corner that sounds a lot like the stone in the hat that's very true yeah that's I hadn't heard that one before until you just read that his head in a dark corner I thought it was interesting that they called it um, Arabic characters I thought they were reformed Egyptian this was published December 7th 1831 in the Jamestown Journal and it's called The Mormon Delusion by information from the West, some are falling off, as well as others uniting with Joe Smith, the imposter from Palmyra. One who has recently left them by the name of Ezra Booth of Portage County, Ohio, is publishing in the Ohio Star an expose of their diabolical pretensions and impositions. They pretend an ability, as in ancient times, to speak with tongues, and that Smith is able to hold converse with celestial spirits whenever he pleases. One of them pretends to have received a commission to preach the gospel directly from heaven on a piece of parchment, another to have received his on the palm of his hand, and witnesses are found to attest to these lies. Visions are in great repute. One has seen the new Jerusalem and passed through its apartments, etc. The ten tribes of Israel are locked up, they say, by the ice at the North Pole, where they enjoy the society of Elijah and John. And by and by the ice is to give away, and then they are to return to their own land. Such are some of their absurdities, which this young man is exposing. So I think maybe this one is the closest one to a first vision. Because it says Smith is able to hold converse with celestial spirits whenever he pleases. Which could have been 1820. <laughs> I mean, I guess, but like whenever he pleases is like, I, I don't know. Anyway, right. No, no I, I, yeah. Or it could just be that, you know, how, how revelations just pop into his head whenever he feels like it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah so maybe it's just a different way of saying what he's doing. I thought it was interesting. Um, this is sort of off topic, but... Um, they, one of them pretends to have received a commission to preach the gospel directly from heaven on a piece of parchment. That sounds a lot like a mission call. Yeah, I know. And then one received it on the palm of his hand. Which is... Like, Joseph's... Are these much different than receiving them in a rock and a hat? Um, but yeah, that does sound like a mission call. <laughs> but it also reminded me of um, Joseph Smith Sr.'s blessing to a gentleman, and he promised him he would preach the gospel on the moon. That was... Yeah. We should do a whole episode on the moon. He probably went, right? Oh, yeah, he totally went. There's a lot. There's Quakers there, you know. <laughs> How tall are they? <laughs> what, nine feet? <laughs> Something like that. This one was published March 7th, 1832 in the Fredonia Censor, and it is called Mormonism. We of this place were visited on Saturday last by a couple of young men styling themselves Mormonites. 
They explained their doctrine to a large part of the citizens in the courthouse that evening. They commenced by reading the first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Galatians, also by giving an account of their founder, Joseph Smith, then an inhabitant of the state of New York, county of Ontario, and town of Manchester. Having repented of his sins, but not attached himself to any party of Christians, owing to the numerous divisions among them, and being in doubt what his duty was, he had recourse prayer. After retiring to bed one night, he was visited by an angel and directed to proceed to a hill in the neighborhood where he would find a stone box containing a quantity of gold plates. The plates were six or eight inches square, and as many of them as would make them six or eight inches thick, each as thick as a pane of glass. That's pretty Sorry, thick. Sorry, that's really thick. <laughs> they were filled with characters which the learned of that state were not able to translate. A Mr. Anthony, a professor of one of the colleges, found them to contain something like the Syrian, Chaldean, or Hebrew characters. However, Smith, with divine aid, was able to translate the plates, and from them we have the Mormon Bible, or as they stated it, another revelation to part of the house of Joseph. So this one um, alludes to the um, the numerous divisions among them. Of, um, I think there was a lot of debate on whether there were... Um, revivals in 1820. Um, and this is, of course, is in retrospect. So, and someone in, in 12 years later is saying Joseph had this experience. Oh, it's this 12 whole years later. Yeah, this is in the same year that he comes out with his first vision. And again, this person in the newspaper doesn't is not aware that, that it has happened. So, and then so then its description is um, like so it it does do the numerous divisions, and he is not sure what he's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. It says he prayed, but then it says that he was visited by an angel yeah, in bed. Yeah, skips directly to the angel. Yeah, so the angel Moroni visiting him is consistent throughout, but not mm-hmm. the first vision. So, okay. This last one is the 1832 Book of Commandments. The Book of Commandments is the precursor for the Doctrine and Covenants. It was started in 1832 with some revelations dating earlier. And if you look at the Joseph Smith papers, you'll see different parts that were published earlier. And it wasn't published until 1833. Also, I point this out, and I haven't pointed out any specific verses, but nowhere in this entire book does it reference Joseph Smith's first vision, which I, you'd think that, you'd, like, it's in our Pearl of Great Price now. Why isn't it in their scriptures? Is it referenced in the Doctrine and Covenants? No, and that's a good point, too. It's not in the... I guess the Doctrine and Covenants are rules, and I guess, like things that people are doing and I in the first vision isn't a rule um I, yeah that's really interesting I wonder why he didn't put it in there um even to just sort of give him a badge of prophethood I guess mm. and then finally in the summer of 1832 Joseph finally recounts his first first vision in which he sees only the Lord and then he later in 1835 finally brings God into the picture I just want to point out that you're saying first, first vision. You're saying first, first. <laughs> yeah. Because it's he's he retells it more than once. Yeah, he tells it four times, two of them written in his own handwriting. And we will go over this in the next episode or, or two. Um, so, yes, he gives four different accounts, and they're all a little bit different. So of the 28 sources, or the 20, excuse me, of the 29 sources that we looked at, 28 did not reference the first vision. In fact, some of them gave a very opposite mm-hmm. um, story. And then the one source finally did give the reference of the first vision. Is that this one? That's the, yeah, the one that I haven't actually read, but we'll go over next time. 
anyway, that's just to me, it just feels like this is just a made up story to yeah to like back yourself up post yeah historian dan vogel points out that in the 1832 history of the church he was trying to how did i word it um or how did he word it he was trying to give himself um it was an apologetic book uh, the history so that's, that's what i was trying to say um Anyway, and then there's a quote from President Hinckley that I wanted to finish it out with. So, did you want to say anything before? I love this quote. (laughs) Our whole strength rests on the validity of that vision. It either occurred or it did not occur. If it did not, then this work is a fraud. If it did, then it is the most important and wonderful work under the heavens. Okay, well, that's all we have for this episode. Thank you for joining us. Have a great week. I hope you enjoyed <laughs> all this grueling detail of <laughs> listening to way more scriptures than you wanted to, I'm sure. <laughs> it's not really scriptures, though, is it? Newspaper articles yeah, and historical newspaper, documents. Historical uh, documents. Anyway, expect that on this channel, I guess. <laughs> yep. <Yeah. laughs>